Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... Parks, we're suddenly classrooms, we're suddenly boardrooms, we're gyms, we're your social space. Everything that you normally would be doing elsewhere suddenly had to happen in public space. An appreciation of the local park, an awareness of just how difficult it is for some to have access to nature, may have never been higher than during the pandemic, when parks became vital collective backyards for those unable to meet outside of their own neighbourhoods. But as cities increase in density... Green space is at a growing premium, and innovation is needed to ensure parks continue to bring about the social, health and economic benefits for which they are relied upon. On today's show, we explore the past and future of the city park. We look at two case studies from North America on ways in which cities can do good with their green spaces, and there's a lesson from Finland on building better park benches too. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. To start our exploration of the greener corners of our cities, we're joined by the authors of Parks of the 21st Century, a book that presents 52 parks in the US, Mexico, Canada, Europe and China that have turned less than favourable fields into beautiful and beneficial landscapes. Victoria Newhouse is an architectural historian and Alex Pischer is a senior landscape architect at Sawyer. Thank you both for speaking to me today. Now, Victoria, let me start with you first. So Parks of the 21st Century has been out for a little while, over a year now, and has certainly made its mark. Can you tell us, first of all, about your ambitions behind making this book? Yes. Well, actually, it's a very good question because I am not a landscape architect. My field is architectural history. And I had just finished writing a book about the new Nearchos Cultural Center in Athens, Greece. The Nearchos Foundation had asked me to write this book, and it was divided into chapters, each one of which addressed one aspect of this vast cultural center, and one chapter was devoted to the new park that they created there. I had never written about parks before that, so I became quite intrigued uh, by the process of what has to be done to create a park, to design it, to maintain it, and so forth. And that's when I got the idea that it might be interesting to write a general survey of parks around the world. And of course, I needed help to do that because of my own lack of knowledge in this field. And that's where Alex Pischer came in. Well, Alex, let's bring you in at this juncture. You know much about the, the history of these these parks. I know here in the UK, ma- many of the, the early parks and Victorian parks began because they were seen as a, a health benefit, somewhere for the, the poor to go and get fresh air. But what is the, the general movement around parks? What's the, the story of their birth? Parks, as we understand them, are a relatively recent phenomenon that, at least in the US, can be traced to roughly the mid-19th century. There's many factors that really began to influence public parks and their development, such as the English picturesque movement, the Industrial Revolution, and the creation of the bourgeoisie class. Increased awareness of public health, as you noted, and in the U.S., really an awareness of the public parks in Europe and a desire to emulate them. So in Europe, many of the public parks were former royal hunting and pleasure grounds, such as Hyde Park, 
But in the US, of course, these types of green spaces don't exist. But the green spaces that do exist are the town common or the green, uh, which was often grazing land for livestock, and then the cemetery, particularly the rural garden cemetery. So, for example, Boston's Mount Auburn Cemetery and Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery were where people would really go for recreational activities and to socialize. And eventually there was a realization that maybe green space could exist that offers a place for recreation without the monuments and memorials as constant reminders of mortality. So, you know, as Victoria noted, a famous example is, of course, New York Central Park, where in the mid 1800s, New York was rapidly uh, growing and lacked green space. So city officials and influential citizens had traveled to Europe's capital cities, saw the famous parks and wanted to emulate them. So to rectify this lack of green space, city officials identified land a bit north of where New York's population center was at the time, which was in lower Manhattan, and launched a competition to design a park. And responding to this was the team of Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox. Olmsted at the time was a farmer and journalist and editor living in Staten Island, but he'd recently returned from a trip to England where he was inspired by the picturesque and particularly Birkenhead Park where he saw connections between parks and their ability to spur economic growth. So the Olmsted and Vox plan, which they originally called the Greensward plan and later uh, named Central Park, won and became the country's first large-scale public park and really launched Olmsted's career into landscape architecture. Victoria, tell me, when we see the ambitions of people making parks today in some of the places that you have surveyed, do you find many of, of the same motivations in a way, you know, the fitness, health socializing. How do you think the ambitions of park making have changed over time? Well, I think just to go back, I'd like to say that many of the facts surrounding the creation of Central Park are still valid. Like, for example, the enormous increase in real estate value of neighborhoods surrounding a park. That happened with Central Park, where real estate values just soared the minute the park was in place. And also the unfortunate movement or moving of people who had lived in the neighborhood before. They, there's a very, very famous African-American village called Seneca Village that occupied part of the site that Central Park now occupies that were just told to move away. They were forced to move away. And that is comparable to the gentrification that exists today, which is one of the downsides of creating a new park. But to answer your question about what is different, I think the main difference is the awareness of ecological problems, environmental problems connected with climate change. And we tried to pick parks, each one of which addresses these problems, primarily water management. So that is a big difference between what is going on today and the past. Alex, it's fascinating the early example of Central Park, which has obviously become a benchmark around the world for early park building. But one of the stories that you touch on in the book is obviously the High Line, which has become a kind of oddly dominating tale of reuse of infrastructure to make this linear park that somehow really caught people's imagination in a way that is almost hard to explain. And as someone who's been there several times, certainly on a winter's day, it can be very pleasant. In the summer, you can just be in a, essentially in a queue of people walking along the line. Do you understand why that piece of park building has caught people's imagination globally in such a big way? I think, you know, this idea of reoccupying the sort of wasteland uh, that cities create is 
fascinating. There's a sort of romantic image, I think, behind it, too. I think, you know, what sort of launched the High Line were uh, this series of photographs that showed a sort of rewilding that was happening along the elevated rail tracks. And I forget the number, Victoria, you might know off the hand, but this has spurred a lot of sort of imitator parks around the world. I think it was over 60 cities around the world that all had plans to try and imitate the High Line. Not all of them, of course, uh, very few of them got built because it's not an inexpensive thing to do. But I mean, it's quite amazing that there were that many imitators. It was interesting, I guess, you know, that many fully developed cities, as it were, when confronted with the notion that they need to create even more green space, are wondering where they look, whether they look to their, their rooftops, for example, because it's hard to build a large scale park in, in many central urban environments. But here there's a solution, I guess. That, that's why your book is so fascinating, is that actually maybe the piece of polluted land, that the land that wasn't felt fit for putting in residences on, for example, can be cleaned and turned around. And is that one of the things that you wanted to focus on in the book, is this notion that you can be a have-a-go city, you, you can find these opportunities on your doorstep? Yes, there's so many, for example, Riverside sites that were completely inaccessible to the public because they were occupied mostly by industrial machinery and industrial buildings. Right here in New York City, we have two perfect examples with Brooklyn Bridge Park and also the park in in Astoria. And, you know, they were just lost. Now, with the creation of parks on both of these sites, you know, you now have these wonderful views from both of them. And in fact, Michael von Valkenberg, the landscape architect who designed uh, Brooklyn Bridge Park, is very proud of the fact that you can actually dip your toes into the river at certain points in that park that he designed. Yeah, there was a sort of historically a sort of shift that happened where, you know, rivers attracted industry because the river provides a transportation network, connections to networks. And so, you know, cities sort of turned their backs on rivers as these highly polluted, you know, sort of vectors through the city. And now cities are generally sort of reevaluating that and saying these are natural conditions that are something that we should embrace and really showcase and design green spaces along. Well, Alex, your book, Parks of the 21st Century, it surveys some 50 plus parks. Give us an example of somewhere else, perhaps outside of New York City, that caught your attention for the book. Well, I think, you know, one of the parks both Victoria and I really liked is just outside of Paris, the Parc de Pipe d'Herbe. It's a um, former sort of informal dumping ground and gravel quarry along the Seine River. And I think what we found sort of most fascinating by it was the sort of restoration of a riparian corridor. So reintroducing sort of native wetlands and forest bands and things like this, but also the uh, designers sort of focus on non-human populations. So as the name suggests, it's the people of the grass. So the client, if you will, for this project were actually insects and pollinators. And so that's really the focus and the sort of human interaction with the space is sort of muted where providing habitat, providing different connections, I think, between all of these different types of populations really becomes the focus. So for us, I mean, that's, you know, you had asked maybe about differences that we're seeing in park creation. And I think that is sort of one of them, the sort of stereotypical notion of, you know, the park with the big lawn and the sort of canopy trees and things like that, you know, dotting it is kind of going away for something that 
is really looking at ecological restoration and preservation. What an amazing example. Just as a side note, we're next to Regent's Park here where our offices are for Monocle. And I've noticed over the years, fewer and fewer parts of the lawns being fully mowed in, in the summer, wildflowers coming up, pollinators returning there. You see bird watchers up there at the weekends, which they maybe a, a generation ago would have been unthought of as birds of prey even return to central London. So a fascinating twist. And Victoria, Alex has set us up there nicely because I did want to ask you as well. So we have these natural outcomes, beneficial outcomes from the way that parks are now being built. But I guess that there are also you know, social outcomes, health outcomes. They're also now part of planning a park where perhaps they weren't so top of mind in the past. Yes, well, I think, you know, we realized the value of parks during the shutdown for the pandemic uh, here, where, you know, people were cooped up, especially with children. It was, you know, very, very difficult to find relief from this uh, isolation. And I went regularly to Central Park and I was amazed at how full of people it was. I think everybody had the same idea that it was a way of giving a little relief to this very difficult period that we were all going through. And Alex researched uh, parks across the United States and found the same thing, that some parks were closed down in the beginning because of fear of contagion. But then many of those parks opened up as this thing progressed. And so, I mean, that was a tremendous resource during a very difficult time. I think what the pandemic sort of drove home is the importance of public space and access. And these parks, as Victoria mentioned, like the sort of visitation rates swelled and parks now had to become really flexible in use. And we're suddenly classrooms, we're suddenly boardrooms, we're gyms, we're your social space. Everything that you normally would be doing elsewhere suddenly had to happen in public space. Well, Alex and Victoria, thank you so much for joining us on The Urbanist. And your amazing book, Parks of the 21st Century, is out now and it's published by Hardy Grant. We head to Canada next, where in late 2022, the city of Edmonton opened Kinestina Park in the east side of its downtown. The space was long underused, so City Hall decided to transform what used to be a surface parking lot into an area to promote community gathering. Monocle's contributing editor, Sheena Roster, brings us to the park in the Canadian prairie city and explains how its design not only helps revive a neglected area, but how it's also a way for Canada's indigenous peoples to reclaim their space in the city centre. Just blocks to the east of Edmonton City Hall, I come across Kinistina Park, with a bright red canopy overhead stretching from end to end across the space, this park shines among the overcast wintry scenes in downtown Edmonton on a snowy day in February. Now, to do the park justice, I'm going to let landscape architect Jill Robertson from Dialogue Design, the firm behind the landscape design of the park, explain exactly what it looks like. The big idea and the origin of the name is 
the Cree word for we three. Kanistana speaks to the three histories of the site. There's an indigenous history, there's a colonial history, and then there's also a Chinese history. This is close to the site of the original Chinatown in Edmonton. And so we three is the story of all of these different versions of Edmonton's story coming together. And we've expressed that in the design through this red canopy, which we call the common thread. And it's the thread that stitches all of these narratives together. It's bright red to be reflective of the Chinese history. And it has a beautiful Métis beading pattern on the underside to reflect the Cree history. The park itself is located immediately east of downtown Edmonton in the quarter, so in a neighborhood that's really diverse, it's vibrant, but it's also going through a lot of change. And the goal for the city was to build the public realm and help be a catalyst for change and development in that part of the city. So the big design move is really the canopy, but there's also an open lawn for people to play. There are two different play areas for children. There's a big boardwalk for people just to sit and hang out. It's meant to be a really fun, active, and inclusive space for Edmontonians. Kanistana means us three in the Indigenous language Plains Cree, a name the city of Edmonton chose. As Jill explains, the name set the stage for the design narrative of inclusion and togetherness. The city named the park in advance of the design, which doesn't always happen. Usually the inverse happens. And so that understanding of we three and those three histories, it really did influence the design process. We wanted to be able to celebrate each of those histories uniquely and then individually. So we thought about it a little bit like a braid. There's three strands. They need to stand alone. But when you weave them together, that's where you get the strength and the vibrancy of the story. And so that was a a guiding factor in how we thought about the park and how the design evolved. As part of the design on the red canopy, Métis artist, architect, and independent curator Tiffany Shaw was commissioned to incorporate her grandmother's floral beading pattern into part of the design. Her grandmother was a moccasin maker, so incorporating her design in unison with that of Dialogue's vision adds to the cultural significance to the Indigenous people in the area. Their original concept is to be a thread that runs through the site this red thread. And I wanted to complement that where my pattern weaves in and out of the canopy, touches the ground, comes back up and weaves back through it. And the weaving is this idea around cultural erasure, where it comes in and out and has a resiliency and it thrives despite the persistence of the erasure of our culture. Antonio Gomez Palacio is a partner and the dialogue chair. And for city builders like the team at Dialogue, projects like Knistana Park is what gives their work meaning. A few years ago, we literally went through a soul-searching exercise as to why do we wake up in the morning? Why do we do this? And concluded that the reason why we do what we do is to meaningfully improve the well-being of the communities. And the issues are going to be very different in different environments. Sometimes it is very much about climate change or equity or mental health or cultural alienation. Sometimes it's all of these things together. But through the craft that we love, which is city building, right, which is design, architects, landscape architects, engineers, interior design, through these crafts, we're looking for how can we make meaningful and positive impact. Parts of the city where it tends to be more forgotten about and has vulnerable communities, we don't invest in public spaces. This was an intentional investment by the city of Edmonton to revitalize part of the city in a space that's been forgotten. How rewarding was it 
for you as a team at Dialogue to be part of that investment into revitalizing the downtown here in Edmonton? It was amazing. I ran into a gentleman at the park just on a regular day, and he was actually there in mourning. And I am an excitable person. I was happy that day. And he sort of came over and started challenging me about why I was happy in the space. And we started having a conversation. And he told me that he was there in mourning. His friend had actually passed away in that park. And so we got into a big conversation about the role of public realm. And what he said to me was the Indigenous art pattern that Tiffany created to me as a colonial settler, I don't have the same level of understanding. To me, it's just a beautiful pattern. And I was really fortunate to work with her. But to this gentleman, it had this entirely different meaning. To him, it meant this was designed for you. This park is a safe space for you. He recognized that pattern and a level of meaning in it that I didn't necessarily understand. And to him, it said, the city values you. They want you here. You can be part of this space. You can mourn here. You can celebrate here. You can pray here. It's a space for you. And to have this conversation with this gentleman and to see it through his eyes, that to me was the most astonishing thing about this process because it made me think about all of the spaces where we don't do that and the subtle, sometimes subtle, sometimes direct cues that tell people they are or are not welcome in space. And so I really think that this park is special and I commend the city for making that investment in it because it has reached out to a population that is often forgotten. And for Métis designer Tiffany Shaw, her contributions to the design of the park also has more of a personal meaning. Often when I make these works, it's mostly just to make sure that people like my brother have spaces to feel like themselves. I never kind of know where he is or where he's living, and he's in and out of incarceration. And I'm often thinking about him in those spaces, and so I'm hoping that people like my brother or like my family can go to these spaces and feel a greater purpose, that they belong in this place. And I think that the team with Dialogue really endeavored to make sure that this place gives dignity. For Monocle, in Edmonton, I'm Sheena Rossiter. Next up, we head to a city that's been quietly working away at countering its state's reputation for automobile dependence. Monocle's Chris Lord tells us the tale of Dallas's efforts to park the idea that the car is always king. I spent a lot of time in Dallas, Texas over the past year. It's where Monocle held its first US conference in November, in this big, burly city of busy roads and mirrored towers. Yet, over several visits from the windows of my hotel room in the National Building in downtown, I've seen car parks being transformed into actual parks, and seen new lawns being seeded across town. In such a concrete jungle, this can seem like small green shoots, but in 20 years, Dallas has built 23 acres of parkland within the city core. For anyone who knows this city, a steady greening is something of a slow-burn revolution. The story of Dallas is written in its roads. The city boomed in the mid-century as a banking centre to serve Texas's oil barons. It was always a city where the car is king, but after the recession of the 1980s, the centre hollowed out as businesses fled and residents decamped to the suburbs it became a drive-in, drive-out city, not a place to walk around 
especially after dark. Meanwhile, the building of monumental highways tore through poorer communities and left many African-American neighborhoods segregated from the CBD. But in the last 20 years, downtown Dallas has been on a path to revival. Restored high-rises have enticed people back to the center, from 200 residents in the late 90s to almost 15,000 today. Parks have been essential for smoothing out some of its entrenched urban kinks. Clyde Warren Park, for instance, was built in 2012 and tucked one of the freeways under verdant fields, making it possible to walk from the new arts district to uptown. Go a little further out, Dallas has transformed a defunct railroad into miles of running and cycling paths, years before New York built the High Line. And today, it's a much-loved, much-used green corridor that, fortunately, also has a few good pubs dotted along the way. The network of urban oases that have been built or expanded upon in Dallas have brought art and personality into the cityscape. But this is still a work in progress, and Harwood Park is set to open in the middle of this year. It's a reminder, in even the most car-culture city like Dallas, parks can be an urbanist tool to make a city more livable, lovable, and, eventually, more walkable. Monocle's Chris Lord there, and my thanks to him. Well, we head to Helsinki now to hear from a company that wants to offer city planners better tools to shape their public spaces. Parkley designs and manufactures wooden modules that can be used to set up urban furniture. They're easy to install, flexible and don't require much planning, thus offering citizens a low-threshold way to shape their living environment. Monocle's Petri Bursov met up with the company's co-founder and CEO, Daniel Booman. Large-scale urban planning initiatives often neglect simple things like a comfortable and strategically placed park bench or vacant pot or two where the neighborhood can have a go at urban gardening. The Helsinki-based Parkley set out to solve this problem. They manufacture simple and durable wooden modules that can be used as benches, urban farming boxes, urban street-level libraries, or for planting trees, to name just some examples. The key is that they are fast and easy to assemble. The idea for the company was born out of the experience that Daniel Booman had when designing urban spaces for cities and municipalities. We learned that quite often when we were building something up, it was demolished the following year or in the end of the season, and we wanted to lean a bit against that. So we thought we have to invent or create an urban furniture that is modular, easy to store because that's another kind of tricky fact for the cities because it's too bulky sometimes and has to be so that you can put it together in a very different ways and use it as seating or planters etc etc so yeah that's the story how we kind of realized there is a missing product on the market and we are now trying to professionalize this And could you name some examples of how your furniture is used or can be used? Mostly it's used in public space, of course. We have uh, municipalities that want to try new things out. Also, there is the aspect of flexibility in public space. So I think with Parkley, we have a product that really 
grants this. It's used, for instance, for uh, parklets, for urban areas which are sealed. If you want to put up more green spaces, make a more lush area, a more friendly area. We have many examples of it in Europe, for instance, superblocks in Barcelona. So this is a furniture mainly for temporary usage, although the word temporary is connotated sometimes a bit negatively. But uh, still, there is a lot of urban uh, designers and urban planners that are realizing that by creating urban spaces bottom-up and to have participation on top of the list, that changes in public space are more accepted and that the needs of the people are more integrated. Parkley's modules are made of wood with metal frames for durability. Here's Booman explaining why. Well, for one reason, wood is the best seating comfort. The other is it's a renewable material, especially here in Finland. And we have also metal components, and there's nothing bad with this, because especially with metal, when it's coated well, you can reuse it, and it has a very long lifespan. Which cities are you active in right now? We have predominantly, as a Finnish company, naturally found Finnish cities and municipalities as our first adopters of our product. So we can name a few. Helsinki, for instance, Turku. There is more to come. We have also clients abroad. We have, for instance, in uh, the Netherlands, in a city called Groningen, we have set up a park and there is one to come in Switzerland in a mid-sized city I can't reveal yet. Parkley can provide cities with the tools to transform their public spaces with a low threshold, but this requires a paradigm shift in the city hall with regards to how the role of the public space is conceived. It starts by a city wanting to grant public space to their citizens. We are helping and providing them so to say, the hardware to do so. And how it's not very difficult to create something like a community, but you have to make spaces more livable. They should become public living rooms where people can meet each other, exchange, enjoy, have these encounters. And that makes an area also more safe and more lively. More often than not, it is the citizens instead of the bureaucrats at City Hall who know what is best for the public spaces in their neighborhoods. Companies such as Helsinki's Parkley offer cities smart and flexible tools to test and build more livable urban spaces. For Monocle in Helsinki, I'm Petri Burtsov. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to get every new episode directly to you every single week. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to Monocle magazine too for regular reports on all things urbanism. And you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carl Trebello and David Stevens, And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's James Blake with Barefoot in the Park. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. Barefoot.